Hello, welcome back to Ripples with me, Claire English. Another week's past. Autumn leaves are falling from the trees. We're on the outskirts of winter. Usual seasonal cycle, but this time there's an added sense of urgency for the forgotten 500,000. Those vulnerable people who have precious little or no protection against the ravages of COVID. Well, we know the numbers are climbing again, and this means time's running out to ensure that the people we've been following on Ripples have peace of mind and some vestige of decent health over the winter months. As a society, most of us have moved on. Vaccines have made this possible, but it's not the case for everyone, and we have to remember that. And more than that, we need to do something about it. We know, tantalisingly, there is a solution out there. It's called Evusheld. It would certainly help to protect our vulnerable citizens, but it's been pushed back into a review process, which means the chances of getting it rolled out before winter are slim as things stand. Huge implications for people who live with bad health or their carers and loved ones. This time on Ripples, I'm concentrating on the campaigners who support patients and their families, the charities and patient groups. So let's have a look on the Zoom screen and see who's there today, shall we? My name is Paul Howard. I'm the Chief Executive of Lupus UK. I've been with the charity for about 11 and a half years and took over as the Chief Executive in uh, April 2020. And uh, we are the national charity for people affected by lupus, which is an autoimmune condition often treated with immunosuppressant medication. And how many people are you representing? So lupus is a relatively rare condition. Um, it's believed to affect around one in a thousand people in the UK. So that's approximately 70,000 people living with lupus. That's more than UK. enough. And, and very briefly for anyone who's listening to this that really doesn't know how lupus can affect you, it can be pretty devastating, can't it? Yeah, so it's it's a very, as a disease, lupus does range a lot in how it affects people. Um, so some people may be relatively mildly affected and the main symptoms they live with may be fatigue, some joint pain, some skin involvement. Um, but for other people, it can affect various organs. Uh, the kidneys are the most commonly affected, but it can also affect the lungs, the heart, the brain, and so for those people with moderate to severe lupus, it's quite commonly treated with immunosuppressant medication, perhaps high doses of steroids, and those carry their own risks as well. Right. I'm going to say hello to familiar faces. I've got uh, Mark Oakley on the screen and Blanche Hampton as well. Blanche will come to a little bit later, but Mark, just remind us who you represent. Um, I represent a patient group called Ebbyshell for the UK basically covers a, anybody and, and everybody, whatever their condition that, that's stuck in this situation, um, campaigning to get every shell to, to try and get some freedom back in their life. So you're like an umbrella organisation for charities, patient organisations. Can you tell me what the difference actually is between that? Is, is a patient organisation completely different from a charitable status? Um, pretty much, yeah. I mean, we, we, we've just set up as a group on our own of, of, of people that are all in the same boat, um, just trying to have a, a common voice where we can all work together and, and call for the same thing. Um, a lot of the members in our group will also be members of, of the different charities because they're affected by their own individual personal 
um, illness. Um, charities, well, Paul would tell you better anyway, but, but work in a different way. They, they will offer a whole range of support. We're kind of really here for, for one issue um, that, that's kind of the burning issue for all of us. Um, and it, it kind of gives everybody a chance to be a bit more active, I suppose. Well, let me turn to Paul and ask what sort of support you can give because the people you represent know that there's a solution out there to the problem they're facing with COVID on the rise. We think one in 40 possibly as we start the week, you know, next week. It's incredible. The numbers are climbing. Winter is coming. This is getting incredibly frustrating to say the least. Can you tell me what the mood is amongst the people you represent? I think there's there is a mix um, because particularly within the lupus community, not everyone that we represent is severely sort of vulnerable to COVID. But there will be people who are on relatively mild forms of treatment that may not be on immunosuppressants, and so their day to day life will be very similar to the the wider population. But I think particularly those who are on immunosuppressant medications, um, whether they know that they've not responded to the vaccines or if there's that uncertainty there, um, I think that they do see the rising cases and that is a cause for concern, um, particularly because there is so little control over being able to interact with other people. Um, all of those precautions that were in place to protect the, the most vulnerable in our society have been taken away. And so it, it leaves people feeling more and more like they need to shield themselves and isolate themselves from society in order to protect their, their well-being. Do they feel forgotten? <sighs> Sidelined? I don't know if it's so much forgotten or abandoned. Um, I think certainly, you know, we still hear that there are people who are at a higher risk from COVID. You know, you see the, the campaigns related to vaccination. And obviously, the, the vaccine campaign is primarily aimed at those who are at more risk, whether because of their age or because of underlying health conditions. And so there is still messaging about those who are more vulnerable. But in a lot of cases, it seems that people have moved on from the idea of COVID and the pandemic and trying to live lives normally. And so I think it's much more than um, being forgotten. I think that it's almost that there are a lot of people that are not caring enough, not being considerate enough. Well, you've told me already that uh, lupus can affect people to many diff in diff different ways, different severity. So if we look at the vaccines and how they work for people who, for example, have cancers, blood cancers, autoimmune disease, how has the vaccine worked out for them? So this is really important and I, I appreciate you bringing this up because the vaccines are still a really important tool in the protection against COVID-19. Um, we know that people who are on immune suppressant drugs or who are immune compromised are less likely to have uh, an adequate response to the vaccines. But what we're starting to see through more and more trial data is that the number of vaccines you have increases your chance of having a favorable response. So we saw some data, um, particularly in people with rare autoimmune rheumatic diseases like lupus, um, after the second dose of vaccine, 
about 43% of people had a measurable antibody response. After the third dose, that had gone up to about 51%. And after a fourth dose, that had gone up to about 66%. So you can see that each successive dose does mean that more people within that group are likely to be protected. So I think it's really important, even if you've had no antibody response to the first four or five doses, that you continue to get those doses because those later ones are more likely to have a response. But obviously that does leave quite a large proportion of people in this group who haven't had a measurable antibody response. Now we know that antibody response isn't the only factor when considering immune response and whether they've got protection from the vaccines. So it's hopeful that even those who haven't had a measurable antibody response will have some level of protection against COVID. It's, we don't have that reassurance there. So we want to make sure that you know, those people who haven't had a measured response are able to get additional protections. And for those who have sadly contracted COVID, how well has the antiviral programme worked for them? Ah, that's a really good <laughs> question. I think that access has been a big problem um, in two respects. I think the first is timely access. So we know that people need to have those treatments within the first five or seven days of being symptomatic of COVID-19. And because of the high case numbers, the COVID medicine delivery units who assess people for the treatments have been under pressure. And a lot of the time, people haven't had access to those treatments until far too late. Um, and then I think the other side is that a lot of the time, people aren't necessarily getting access. We know particularly in rare diseases, people just aren't being invited. With, you know, they haven't received the letter to say that they should be sent free tests. So they're not testing themselves when they get positive in time and they're not being referred to a COVID medicine delivery unit. So there's still work that needs to be done around NHS Digital's coding system to make sure that everyone who is at an increased risk from COVID is identified tested and assessed when they are positive for COVID. Mark, you're nodding along there from Evershell UK. Uh, does this chime with your experience that people either are getting news about antivirals too late or just not being told at all? Yeah, it's, it's a very mixed picture. Um, I mean, we, we've had people that have, that have had, you know, really good results with it. They, they've been contacted really quickly and sorted out. But then we've had other ones that have been told by their consultant who knows them inside out, that they are eligible for them. And then when they've actually phoned up, they've been turned away or ended up having an argument on the phone. And when you're in this kind of situation, you know, being ill is, is bad enough. And the, having the worry that you've then contracted COVID, um, which could potentially affect you in a, in a, you know, with a bad outcome, having to try and argue with someone down the end of the phone or actually at the, at the medicine unit is... Is not great. Um, is this a communications issue more than anything else? This is bad communications or, or no communication whatsoever? Or the way you're communicating with patients as well? I think it is. And it, it, I think, you know, it's not aimed at the, the frontline staff. It, it does appear to be an organisational problem. There's also problems at weekends um, with, with being able to access it. And we've had stories in, in the last big wave when quite a few people were, were trying to act, you know, were being told to go to the, the units and the nurses that were there um, 
were off sick and with COVID and there was no one to replace them. So they couldn't then get the drugs that they need in a timely manner. So it's, it is a difficult one. And it's, it seems to be the organisation is a big lumbering beast. We, you know, we had similar problems with this when, when people in this category had to get a third initial vaccine and the computer system just wasn't set up for it. And, and people were phoning up and, and literally crying on the end of the phone, trying to get that third dose and were being turned away having been told they were the most vulnerable and were the first in front of the queue having on the 1st of September last year and people were waiting for the other side of Christmas while watching people in, in different cohorts before them um, who were perfectly healthy, but because of their age, understandably, were getting the vaccines before them. And it, it's just this kind of... The announcements kind of seem to get made, but the system doesn't get put in place to properly deal with it, unfortunately, because it just seems to be such a big, unwieldy beast is that something you concur with paul you know something you've seen and maybe there's not been learning from from the vaccine program and what went wrong there i think unfortunately there's a lack of a um collaborative and cohesive approach to these rollouts so too often i've spoken to clinicians a day or two after the announcement and they're scrambling trying to find ways to deliver on the promises that are being made because they haven't been consulted in the process about what they can actually deliver. Um, this is crazy, isn't it? You'd think, we're in a similar... You know, this is crazy. This is not joined up thinking at all. It's, it's extremely frustrating. And I'm, I'm not one of these people that, that's uh, suffering in any way. I've got my vaccinations. I'm okay. It must be absolutely, I'm trying to temper my language here, galling to realise that, you know, if it was just a more fluid system that people could talk to each other, these things could be sorted out you would have people being treated and protected. Yeah, and I think it's it would be particularly beneficial to have more engagement earlier on with the patient groups and the organisations because we're aware of the idiosyncrasies and problems that people are facing on the ground level. And so we can contribute that at the early stage rather than them out rolling out a system that then needs... There's lots of little fixes later on to try to address the, the problems that people come across. Paul Howard, Chief Exec of Lupus UK and Mark Oakley, who's a regular Rippler and he represents the Evershield UK campaign. Right now you're listening to Ripples with Claire English and these wonderful guests. We're going to hear more from them in a moment. Plus, we've got patient, campaigner, health comms expert Blanche Hampton waiting in the wings to give us her reaction to the conversation a little later. So shall we jump back into that chat? And uh, spoiler alert, I'm about to ask an obvious question. So into this picture we have Evershield, which is sitting there in review, but could possibly help people that are in this predicament where they haven't got any protection and they've got no respite from shielding for longer and also the fret and the stress and the strain on your, your life and your, your loved one's lives. So Paul, what do you make of the fact there is a solution out there, but for whatever reason, it seems to have gone down the wrong route or a decision's been made and it's not going to be rolled out? Well, it's incredibly frustrating and upsetting, um, you know, knowing that there is a, a potential solution to help reduce the risk of people who are not protected sufficiently by vaccines. 
um, and to, to give them some additional reassurance should they contract COVID, which becomes increasingly likely when uh, proportions are being dropped, including in places such as healthcare settings, where they will have to attend for monitoring and treatment. Um, I think it seems to be that there is a, a, a different threshold being used for the approval of Evershield and the use of Evershield when compared to the other COVID solutions, such as vaccines and um, post-exposure treatments. Earlier today, I was reading the report, which has just been published um, by the Rapid C19, um, looking at the evidence that was reviewed to decide whether Evershield should be procured or not. And interestingly, they say that there's not sufficient evidence that Evershield will prevent symptomatic COVID-19. But that threshold to me seems too high because we know that the vaccines don't prevent symptomatic disease in the majority of people. What instead they should be looking at is whether Evershield is preventing severe disease and death in this cohort. And we'll be asking that question, why is the threshold different for Evershield when compared to the vaccine? I want to ask you and Mark, what do you think is going on here? That's it's weird. Yeah, it, it is weird. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lack of transparency. They have now published this Rapid C19 report, but it's very unclear why they are deciding that Evershield needs to prevent symptomatic disease whereas the other treatments are trying to prevent severe disease and death. Um, I believe that there is international evidence, real-world evidence, showing that Evershield is effective in preventing severe disease and death, and that should be sufficient to make it available in the UK for that small group of people who don't have protection from the vaccine. And of course, it's being rolled out in over 30 other countries. They don't seem to have the same concerns. Mark, what's your take on it? Uh, very similar to Paul. I think they have somehow backed themselves into a, a end on this, and I don't think they quite know how to come out of it. Um, I think probably part of the problem was the, the big gulf we had in central government during the summer and, and the changes and the fact that there was no one really steering the ship inside or out. And I think it's it seems to be, as Paul said, being viewed by different people in different ways to, to what it what it should be and in different contexts. And that's having a, a massive knock-on effect on the people that, that should be on the receiving end of it. We know it's working abroad. I was speaking to Dr. Yann Gain yesterday, who is a French doctor at the Louis Pasteur Institute, and he's carried out one of these studies. Um, you know, one of, one of the big concerns is if we keep getting thrown up is, well, what about different variants coming on? Um, well, isn't that fair enough? Which, because they don't know whether or not this will be any use with Omicron. Well, the evidence is showing it so far. I mean, they are seeing it stand up at the moment. And, and you know, real-world data is showing it that it's standing up. I spoke to a doctor in America this week, um, and they are saying, you know, it is still standing up. It's one thing to look at stuff in laboratories and small-scale tests. It's a different thing altogether to, to look at how it actually works in the human population when it's being used. Um, you know, it's the same with vaccines. There was con big concerns that 
you know, when the Indian variant came along, that that was going to knock it sideways, and and lab tests were showing that. But the real world actually showed completely different. Someone somewhere has got to take a roll of the dice on this, um, because at the moment the only people that are taking the risk are the people stuck at the, the sharp end, like us, that are having to, to deal with this every day. And and if, if it doesn't give, you know, if, if it only gives somebody fifty percent or forty percent um, coverage, it's better than nothing. And, and we're being told take the vaccine. It's for some of you we know it's going to have a very small effect but it's better than nothing. And the Americans use a, a model called the Swiss cheese model. So if you think of, of slices of Swiss cheese with all the different holes in them, if you actually mix them up and, and put them together, the next le- layer will cover the holes in that one. And that's kind of what they're looking at is, you know, it, it's not a drug to be used in isolation, but used with everything. It's giving us the best defence that, that we can give, sort of a layered defence. And having spoken to uh, Professor Ali Richter last time on Ripples as well, she's saying this is a preventative that works. This is There's nothing controversial about Evichel. It's not as if people are worried about its efficacy particularly or it being dangerous. It wouldn't do harm if it was given. So again, Paul, back to you. What are we to make of this since the science is pointing in one direction and the politics in another? Yeah, it's... It's just a difficult. It's a difficult question that I really don't have an answer to. Um, you know, I think that the most sensible thing is to have this treatment added into the the tool of our the arsenal that's available to protect those most at risk from COVID nineteen, especially as we enter the winter, um, and we are concerned about uh, COVID nineteen about the flu, about other ill health um, caused by cold weather. I think the the question of variants and whether um, Evershell will continue to be um, suitable against these newer strains, I think the problem is that if you continue to kick the decision down the road, then there will be new variants avail- uh, around and circulating. And the likelihood that Evershield will be suitable against those newer variants is even further reduced. Um, so it should be used whilst the likelihood of it working is highest. Um, and we count on the, the fantastic scientists who are continuing to develop new therapies. We know that other uh, preventatives are being developed, and we hope that those will come out when newer variants arise which can no longer uh, be protected against with the vaccines and with Evershield. Um, I think there is the same issue with the post-exposure treatments. We know that some of those are designed to work on particular variants and that the the process over time they will be cycled out and new therapies will have to come in um but if there's good enough evidence that they can be used now then they should be um if there is going to be a reversal of the decision has it come too late almost or are we at sort of one minute to midnight there's still a chance that you know there could be something some great good done i don't know if mark or you want to answer that one whichever yeah um... (sighs) i'm Every day wasted is, is, you know, a day putting us closer to winter and a day where more people 
are being put at risk, ending up in hospital, um, and, and people are dying. There's, there is no doubt about it, and we know the figures of, of that from from the people that you know. Blood Cancer UK have looked at the figures just between when the government made their decision, going back to when the MHRA um, approved it, and the numbers of, of people that, that died that could have potentially have, have been prevented it is is staggering. It's, it's around about four hundred people. Um, but it, it could be rolled out quickly. I mean, we've spoken to clinicians that, that have looked at, at sort of solutions with this, and they think as, as soon as the drug supply comes through, it's fairly easy to administer. They could be rolling out, they say, um, if, if they started it tomorrow, they could be rolling out by the end of the month into people's backsides. So every day counts. Um, wow. But it doesn't to some people. Yeah, well, I'm I'm watching Blanche on the screen as well. Blanche, let me invite you back in to the room. Well, you're in the Zoom room, but anyway, come back in uh, and tell us what you made of some of the points that stuck out for you, because you're somebody living this experience and a lot of this will be familiar ground. Um, sadly, yes. Um, I guess first up in, in reference to um, patient groups, um, the problem with underlying conditions is that they're not so much underlying as overwhelming, um, both for the unlucky people who have them and their families. And when you're absorbed in trying to manage your health, you don't really have the energy to fight for the treatments that al would allow you to have what everybody else has, a relatively normal life. And this is where patient groups come in, providing advice, solidarity and the strength to advocate on behalf of patients. I'm a great respecter of the people who form and run patient groups. They not only work to improve the situation of people like me, but they empower us by giving a sense of being part of something bigger and not simply lying down and accepting situations that are unjust. But, but now, I'm wondering about how much clout, how much power they actually have. It's wonderful to lobby and to make your voice heard. But, you know, I, I want to ask you all this, really. But, Blanche, what do you feel is the power, the actual political power to change things of patient groups and charities? Well, certainly, if you don't make a noise, nobody will pay any attention to you. And... The idea that a group represents a large number of patients, that they have um, methods of dealing with media, that they are able to coalesce ideas into simple messages is just so important. You know, the individual people, yes, they make some impression, but there is nothing like having um, a representative of organisation X of the UK saying something you can ha you have a voice that is much louder than anything any single patient could do no matter how tragic their circumstances um and often people you know that they would prefer not to be emotionally threatened by a very sick person and so it's easier to take in what somebody who is representing a patient group can say yeah, Paul, you're smiling along to that. But there is an opportunity very soon in the next wee while, in the next few days, actually, a debate during Westminster on the 12th of October. How important is that going to be? Uh, sometimes these debates are well attended, but is that the point? Is it about raising the profile and, and, you know, rallying support just to make sure that it's on the agenda at Westminster at least? Yeah, I think that the more conversations that are had about this, the better, because it is going to bring it home to more and more uh, members of parliament 
that this is a problem for constituents in their area. And so I'm hopeful that the sort of mobilization of the different patient organizations are going to result in a good attendance at that debate on Monday um, or Wednesday, sorry. Wednesday. <laughs> um, I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope that it's going to be um, well attended. But if it's not, it's not going to be the last opportunity. Um, this is part of an ongoing conversation and we'll continue to have as many discussions about it as we possibly can through as many channels as we can because the experiences of people who continue to be at risk from COVID-19 must be heard and additional steps to protect them must be taken. And it won't hurt at all, Mark, that um, a couple of former health secretaries, Tory health secretaries, have added their voice to the fray as well. We've had Lord Lansley and Jeremy Hunt. Are you hopeful that their voices will carry some weight with their colleagues that are making the decisions? Yes, very. I mean, Lord Lord Lansley is on the the uh, all party parliamentary group um, for the vulnerable in the in the pandemic, so he's he's a really big voice in this, and he's been a really strong advocate. Um, and Jeremy Hunt has just voiced his opinion as a former health secretary, as you know, somebody that is is respected in that role for the years he's had. Um, we are, I mean, going back to sort of patient groups, one of the things we have the ability to do is kind of mobilise people quite quickly. And also people tend to have a little bit of fire in their belly that, that are in these groups. Um, and I mean, things like this debate, we, we, we've had various letter campaigns going on to, to MPs and, and we've seen a real turnaround from when we started just four months ago to now the amount of MPs that have kind of some have sprang into action, some have had to be shown the evidence and, and worn down a bit, but more and more. And even some of the the staunchest sort of ones that you think wouldn't say, yeah, I'll, I'll go and raise this, are raising it now. Um, and the numbers are quite eye-watering, to be honest. When we started, we had about four or five MPs that, that we could talk to and were interested. We, we're, we're over the 100 mark. We're getting around about 150 Um that are interested. And we've contacted so many about this debate that have said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and make time to go along. Whether they go, I don't know, but there is certainly the interest there and people pushing them to go. So people power does make a difference. It, it really does. Blanche, as an Aussie, uh, you believe in the power of the pollies. If you can get to them, things do change, don't they? Oh, <laughs> are you on mute? Hello? Hello. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I've I've have had personal evidence of of how this can work, and I look. I all my um, wishing parts of my being are for this thing to um, to be. We need another U-turn, please, guys. Can we just have another U-turn? Um, the initial shielding was hard, but. At least then it was a world I shared with everyone else. And now at the end of 2022, facing a tough winter, it's hard to be part of a large but forgotten or abandoned group. That seems like a good place to end it, maybe apart from the fact if people are interested in helping and coming together, where would you tell them to coalesce around, Mark? Would it be uh, bring Evershell to the UK, Evershell for the UK, hashtag the forgotten 500,000? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, we're getting new members all the time. They're more than welcome on board. Um, you know, there, there's so much information on our Facebook and our, our web 
website. It, it's, you know, and it's it's there to give a true reflection and a fair reflection of all the information so people can make their own choice. There's things that we can get involved with. We've got template letters for, for sending to MPs. And, and there's information to help as well. You know, people are struggling with this mentally and emotionally, financially. We, we've got good people in the background that are also kind of pitching in to, to lend a hand. Uh, and it's, it's just that having that support of knowing that there's someone else in the same situation as you. So, yeah, they're, they're more than welcome. Very, very final brief point to you, Paul. Yeah, I think I'm extremely grateful to Evershell from the UK. I think they're a perfect example of uh, a patient organisation um, showing the the passion, knowledge and uh, sort of ambition to drive change and improve lives for people. And they exemplify the collaborative spirit of the charity sector, bringing organisations together where we can have the greatest impact. So thank you. And I hope that everyone will check them out on Twitter and show their support. Paul Howard, Mark Oakley and Blanche Hampton. Many thanks to them for their time on Ripples. So there we have it. The campaigners, the charities, patient groups who are pushing for Evershell to be rolled out as soon as possible. They don't sound like they're going to stop anytime soon. Something has to give. They are keeping the faith. We all need to keep pushing until someone sees sense. Winter is coming. We can't hang about. I'm going to leave it there. Next week, we might do something a little bit different with the format. Could be a podcast or something else, she said tantalisingly, or maybe not. But we do rely on your support and you passing on the podcast and information you glean from Ripples. This is all about provoking action, not just more words. As ever, I thank you for your interest and wish you a decent week ahead. Until next time, bye for now.